take our Bibles this morning to the book of Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Everything that Matthew has recorded, beginning with the Messianic chronology, has led us to the Messianic culmination. Matthew has proven beyond any doubt that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. And as such, he is the prophesied Messianic king. And as Messiah, he is divinely appointed to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 However, death is not the end of the Messiah. The Messiah has yet to reign as king. And therefore, he must be raised from the dead. Now, if the messianic cessation was the climax of Matthew's narrative then the messianic culmination is its resolution. All of Matthew's record has been built towards the Messiah's death. And now the Messiah's death is resolved with his resurrection. And Matthew sets forth two aspects of the messianic culmination or the resurrection. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 10, the confirmation of the resurrection. The confirmation of the resurrection. And then we're going to see number 2 in verses 11 to 15. The circumvention of the resurrection. The circumvention of the resurrection. Now the first aspect of the messianic culmination is the confirmation of the resurrection in Matthew 28 verses 1 through 10. Matthew provides six confirmations here regarding Christ's resurrection. We're going to see in verse 1 that the resurrection is confirmed by the day. Again in verse 2 we're going to see it's confirmed by the place. In the third, we're going to see the angel confirms it in verses 2 to 4. In verses 5 to 6, we're going to see the angelic message confirms the resurrection. In verse 7, we're going to see the women confirm the resurrection. And then in verses 9 and 10, we're going to see that the Messiah himself confirms the resurrection. And so the first confirmation of the resurrection is the day in Matthew 28, verse 1. It is con- the, so the confirmation of the resurrection is confirmed by the day. Let's look at verse 1 of Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Again, the first confirmation is the day. Now regarding the day of His resurrection, you'll recall what Jesus previously said. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, He said, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be in the earth, the heart of the earth, three days and three nights. And you'll recall, as we pointed out, that that prophecy motivated, drove the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees to request guards to be placed at the tomb until the third day. Back in Matthew 27, verse 64. And now Matthew begins his resurrection account saying, Now after the Sabbath. Apsa de Sabaton. Now it's important to understand the Greek here because the term Sabbath, now after the Sabbath, in the Greek is actually plural. Referring to more than one Sabbath. If you have a Sabbath, that's singular. But if you have Sabbaths with an S, it's plural. And in the Greek, it's plural. Now let's remember that Nisan 15, the day after Passover, is a first day of unleavened bread. But according to Leviticus 23, it is also to be 
treat it as a Sabbath. And so during the week of Passover, you could have two Sabbaths. The first day of unleavened bread and the weekly Sabbath. And so when, the, when Matthew begins by saying after the Sabbaths, he's telling us that the events recorded here in verses 1 through 10 occur after the unleavened bread Sabbath and after the weekly Sabbath. Now let's focus on that word after. Now after the Sabbath. That word after, apsa, means late in the day before night. Now late in the day before night would be evening. And when the term de, remember our Greek phrase, uh, apsa de sabbaton, when we have that little term de before the word, a word in the genitive case, or before our word Sabbath here, it literally can be rendered this way, at the end of or at the close of the Sabbath. So we can take the phrase now after the Sabbath and translate it this way. In the evening after the end of the Sabbaths or after the Sabbaths ended. Now the Sabbath on the first day of unleavened bread ended at 6 p.m. on the 15th. The weekly Sabbath, which happens on a Saturday, ended at 6 p.m. on Saturday, Nisan 17. Again, all of this is important to confirm the resurrection. Let's go on. Matthew says, Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn. Now, that's where we get this idea that, well, the women came to the tomb at sunrise. Now, is that what the text actually says? The phrase began to dawn translates the Greek verb epiphosko. Epiphosko. And that word simply means drawing near. Something's drawing near. We see this word in Luke 24, 54. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Or the Sabbath was epiphosko. It was drawing near. Now in Luke 23, the preparation day is the Passover. The Sabbath he's referring to is the first day of unleavened bread. And by Jewish reckoning, a day begins when? 6 p.m. So if, if Sabbath was about to begin... In Luke 23, what does that tell us? That it's drawing near. It's getting near to what? 6 p.m. Now, if I take that translation in Luke of Epiphosco and I transfer it over to Matthew 28, then we can take the phrase it began to dawn and more succinctly translate it this way. The first day of the week was about to begin. Now, after the Sabbaths, it began to dawn, or the first day of the week was about to begin. Now, it's noteworthy that if we are consistent in our translation, all the various texts of the Gospels will agree. In fact, what we're going to see here is that the women did not come to the tomb before sunrise, but instead they came after sunset, which fits John 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was dark. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, it's not dark at sunrise. Now, because the tomb was under guard until the third day, that's important, remember? They placed the guard till the third day because he said he'd raise on the third day. The women did not have access to the body until the third day passed. Now, if we go over to Luke chapter 24 and verse 1, it says, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Okay, so Sabbath is over, 6 p.m., 
They're on their way. It's dark. They're on their way to the tomb, and they're bringing the spices they had prepared. Mark 16.1 says, When the Sabbath was over, the women bought spices. Now we have a problem. They brought the spices after the Sabbath that they had prepared, but now we're being told that they didn't buy the spices till after the Sabbath. The problem is, no stores were opened at 6 p.m. on a Saturday. In Luke 23, verse 56, it says, The women returned and prepared spices and perfume, and on the Sabbath they rested. Now, we have to ask ourselves a question here. Again, we know that God, the Scripture is not wrong. Therefore, our understanding has to be corrected if we're going to understand what these passages mean. How can they possibly prepare something, prepare spices before the Sabbath if they didn't buy them until after the Sabbath? How do we make those three verses work together? The answer lies in understanding that we have two Sabbaths. The Sabbath mentioned in Mark 16.1 and Luke 23.4 is the first day of unleavened bread. So that's Thursday. He dies on Wednesday. Thursday's a Sabbath day. First day of unleavened bread. Friday, what do the women do? Buy the spices. And then what do they do with the spices they bought on Friday? They prepare them. Then what do they do on the weekly Sabbath? According to Luke 23, 56, that's the weekly Sabbath. They rest it. And now, after the Sabbath is over, Saturday Sabbath is over, it's now the first day of the week. It's after 6 o'clock p.m., they're now coming to the tomb with what? The spices. Now you say, well, does it really matter? Folks, if God took the time through the Holy Spirit to put it there, it matters. It's there for a reason. These temporal statements are essential because they confirm the truth of the resurrection. Paul clarified the message in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 when he said, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture and he was buried, and he was raised again on the second day. Is that what the Bible says? No. He was raised again on the fourth day. Is that what the Bible says? No. He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. The heart of the Gospel message is that Jesus was raised on the third day. Now, is there any aspect of the Gospel message that's unimportant? Uh, no. And any tampering of that Gospel message, Paul says, is another Gospel. So he must rise on a specific day. And it has to be the third day. The third day after his death. So Jesus died and was buried on Passover, Nisan 14, a Wednesday. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Nisan 15, Thursday, was a Sabbath day. No work could be done. Friday, the 16th, the women bought and prepared the spices. Saturday, the 17th, is the weekly Sabbath. And sometime after 6 p.m. on Sunday, that's Saturday night into Sunday, the Sun 18, they come to the tomb. The women come and find the tomb empty. So let's set our understanding here. Jesus is buried no later than 6 p.m. Wednesday. As Jonah was in the belly of the sea creature three days and three nights, Jesus would be in the grave three days and three nights or 72 hours. So he could be resurrected no later than 6 p.m. Saturday, the 17th. He spent three nights, three days in the grave, resurrected on the third day, on Saturday, just as prophesied. So if you want to put a little chart, and when I mail the books out to you, there's a little chart in your book for you to see. So Wednesday, 
6 p.m. Wednesday to 6 a.m. Thursday is your first night. Thursday, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. is your first day. Thursday, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Friday is your second night. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Friday is your second day. 6 p.m. Friday to 6 a.m. Saturday is your third night. And Saturday, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. is your what? Third day. The women come after 6 p.m. After the weekly Sabbath, it's still dark and the tomb is empty. The various temporal statements regarding the day confirm Jesus' resurrection. Now, he's also confirmed by the place of the grave. Again, look at Matthew 28, verse 1. Here's our second confirmation of the resurrection. is the place of the grave. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now, regarding the grave's place, the role of the women is vital. Matthew notes what? They came to look at the grave. They came to see it. Now, the text records two women came, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Who's the other Mary? Well, this is the wife of Clopas, the mother of James and Joseph. These were the same two women, Matthew recorded, as being present at the burial 72 hours before in Matthew 27, 61. That the women were present at the burial proves that the place of the grave where Jesus was buried was known. They didn't accidentally go to the wrong tomb. They knew where the tomb was. And they came back to the same tomb. No one can legitimately accuse them of mistakenly going to the wrong tomb. The place of the grave confirms the resurrection. Now according to Mark 16.1 and Luke 24.1, they came to the tomb for a reason. They came to prepare or to care for the body of Jesus. And were these the only women present? Were there only two women? No. We know from the other records, the other gospel records, that besides Mary Magdalene, besides Mary, the wife of Clopas, Salome, that's the mother of James and John, she was there. Joanna, the wife of Cusa Herod Stewart, was also there. And there were other women also present. And so the resurrection is confirmed by the day. It's confirmed by the place. And now it's confirmed by an angel. The third confirmation of the resurrection is the angel. In verses 2 to 4. Verse 2 says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. Here's our third confirmation. Now, before the women arrive, there's a severe earthquake. Now, the verb had occurred there. Ginomai means that the earthquake occurred before, okay? It's before the women get there, this earthquake happens. You'll recall that previously, creation reacted to the death of the Messiah. Darkness had descended over the region, and there was an earthquake. And now, there's another earthquake indicating, announcing, He is risen. And this earthquake was severe, the text tells us. In other words, it was greater, it was bigger than the one seventy-two hours before. And the angel of the Lord descended from heaven. Notice this angel is from who? From the Lord. This denotes that this angel was not the servant of Satan. 
He was of God. Hence, Matthew underscores the angel's holiness. This is a holy angel. Notice also the angel descended from heaven. We now know the angel's origin. And what else did the angel do? He rolled away the stone. Now this stone required several men to move it. The women were concerned. Who is going to move the stone? According to Mark 16.3, they were asking one another, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Nevertheless, one angel moved the stone. And that he single-handedly moved the stone underscores his strength or his power. Now, this angel did not move the stone, but then he, sat, he not only moved the stone, but he also what? Sat on it. Now, sitting on it means he has authority. He has divinely appointed authority. You see, Pilate the statesman sealed and guarded the tomb at the request of the Sanhedrin. Nonetheless, the angel came with authority more significant than the Sanhedrin and then the statesman. His authority was more significant than the angels. God commanded him to move that stone and no seal, no group of guards are going to delay or deter that angel. Now why did he have to move the stone? I can tell you this, he didn't move it for Jesus' sake. Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away. Remember, his resurrection body was capable of passing through walls and doors. But this rolled away stone was a confirmation. The angel confirmed the resurrection. Because with the tomb open, the women, the disciples, and anyone else for that matter, could peer inside and see, confirm that it was empty. Next, Matthew explains the angel's appearance was like lightning. And his clothing as white as snow. Now, he's not lightning. It says like lightning. It's a comparative term. Specifically, the term lightning here, lightning here, astrape, implies that his appearance shimmered or flashed, emitted light. What light? The very Shekinah glory of God. This angel radiated in the Shekinah glory of God. And his clothes were white as snow. Now, throughout Scripture, when we see that phrase, white as snow... It denotes incorruption or perfection. So Matthew is not only telling us this angel is holy and his origin and his power and his authority, but now Matthew reveals for us the angel's incorruptible nature. He's pure. He's not going to lie. Now while the earthquake didn't phase the Roman guards, they did shake for fear of who? The angel. Literally they shook They were quaking in their sandals. They were trembling convulsively at the sight of the angel. So much so that they became like dead men. In other words, they didn't die, but they were as if they were dead. In other words, they fainted or they were paralyzed with terror. The angel's appearance not only affected the soldiers, but it does confirm the resurrection. He rolled the stone away. Look, the tomb is empty. Now verse 5 and 6, we have our fourth confirmation. Fourth confirmation of the resurrection is the angelic message. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. Now the angel's holiness, the angel's origin, the angel's power, authority, and incorruptible nature all confirm his message. 
And so when the women arrive at the tomb, they see the aftermath of verses 2 to 4. According to Luke 24, 5, the women were terrified at the sight of the angel. See, it wasn't just the soldiers that were terrified. These women were terrified as well. And that's why the angel says what? Do not be afraid. Now, we have a negative construction of an imperative verb, phobio, or afraid, to convey the sense of this. Stop doing what you're currently doing, okay? You currently are afraid. Stop being afraid. And then he gives them the reason why not to be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Now that verb, know, it implies something. It implies that the angel possessed information, not only regarding the women's purpose in coming, but he had information of which they were not aware. What is that? Well, first, let's look at what he knew about their purpose. He knows why they came to the tomb. They're looking for someone. Who are they looking for? Jesus. Now that verb looking, zateo, is to search for someone. However, it's followed by a noun in the accusative case, Jesus. Jesus in the accusative case, which means this. They were seeking him with anxiety. They knew why did they have anxiety? Why are they filled with fear? Because he's dead. They're sad. And the reason here is is clear. The angel says because Jesus has been what? Crucified. I don't know about you, but I don't know of any record of a crucified person who lives to tell about it. If you're crucified, you're dead. End of the story. And the fact that Jesus was crucified is a critical aspect of the gospel message. Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ what? Crucified. Listen, if you preach Christ stoned, if you preach Christ jumped off a cliff, if you preach Christ run over by a chariot, trampled by horses, my friends, you have altered the gospel. If Jesus died in any other way other than crucifixion, he's not the Savior. You say, well, how can you say that, Pastor. How can you say that salvation can only be achieved because Christ was crucified? How can you say that if he died in any other manner, he can't be our Savior from sin? I can say that because of the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophecies demand he die by crucifixion. During the Passover, they slaughtered the blood of a lamb at the door. And then they took the blood and they applied it to the lintel at the top and the two doorposts on the sides. Interestingly, what is that the location of the blood make a sign of? A cross. In Deuteronomy 21-23, it tells us that if a man commits a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death and hung on a tree. Because he who hangs on a tree is accursed from God. Psalm 22-6 reveals how he would be hung from a tree. They pierced his hands and his feet. Isaiah 53-5 says that the Messiah would be pierced through for our transgressions. We preach Jesus crucified. Now, here comes the information they didn't know. They knew he was crucified. He is not here. He's risen. They came looking for Jesus' body, but they couldn't find his body, not because somebody stole it, but because he's risen. Now that verb, risen, agero, means he's been made alive after dying. 
The angel's choice of that term is significant because it confirms that Jesus died. Jesus didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He died. Also, I want you to notice here that verb risen. It's in the passive voice. In other words, there was an agent behind the resurrection. Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. Someone else did. Now Deuteronomy 32.39 says, See now that I, I am he, there is no God besides me, it is I who put to death, it is I who give life. Yahweh alone has the power over death and life. So the agent of Jesus' resurrection is none other than God the Father. And so we could render that verb, agero, as this, God caused him to live again. God the Father resurrected God the Son, implying that he was pleased with his son's sacrifice for sin. Furthermore, the angel confirms that the Messiah is risen just as he said. Recall with me for a moment that on two different occasions, one with the Pharisee, the other with the Sanhedrin, that Jesus had prophesied, as Jonah was, in the, was, was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And furthermore, Matthew 16 records that from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples, this is key, that he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things from the Sanhedrin, he must be killed, and he must be raised on the third day. They knew that. They obviously didn't believe it, but they knew it. And so when the angel says he has risen just as he said, he confirms that no one stole the body of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead just as he prophesied. Now his statement is meant to jumpstart their faith. Essentially, he's asking them, do you believe? Now the angel follows his message with an invitation. Come. See the place where he was lying. Now that verb come, duta, it's an invitation to approach. Come closer. Now, no doubt, these women are hesitant. They're expecting to see soldiers. They're greeted by an angelic creature. They came expecting to care for the body of a dead man. Instead, they're told that the dead man is now alive. You can see their hesitation. You can understand it. Now his invitations and his joy to a command come, see the place where he was lying. Now the verb lying, kemai, is imperfect, telling us Jesus had been in the tomb for several days. Several days he's been dead in that tomb. Just in case there was any question that they were at the right tomb, the angel says he has indeed been in the tomb. Come and see. Harao, another imperative. I want you to come and perceive. I want you to inspect the tomb. I want you to examine the evidence. There is no body. There is only the linens in which he had been wrapped. Empty linens. And so the angelic message confirms the resurrection. The fifth confirmation is the women. The fifth confirmation is the women. In Matthew 28, 6. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. 
Go quickly. Now the verb go, peruomai, not an imperative. The word go is not a command. It's a participle. And it's joined to an adverb quickly. And so what he's basically saying is, you are going to do it without delay. Go tell the disciples, literally, without delay, tell the disciples. Don't stop, don't pass go, don't collect $200. Get over to the disciples and tell them what just happened. And then we get the command. Tell. Let go. Announce. Just as the shepherds, or excuse me, just as the angels were the first to announce to the shepherds the good news, the good tidings of Jesus' birth, the Messiah's birth. So this angel is the first to announce the good news, the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried, and risen. Do you see that right there in the text? The angel declared the gospel. He was crucified. Here's where he was buried. He is risen. And just as that angel invited the shepherds to go and see the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, the angel has invited the women to come and see the empty linen wrappings in the tomb. But now the angel commissions the women to be the first human witnesses to announce the good news of the gospel, the good news of the resurrection. The shepherds announced to everyone the Messiah was born. The women announced that the Messiah was resurrected. And I find it extremely interesting that the first people to declare the good news of Messiah's birth and the resurrection are those who had been marginalized by society. You see, in the first century... A.D. Jewish culture, women were not viewed as credible witnesses. A woman could not testify to anything in a court of law. Nevertheless, Matthew writing to the Jews to prove Jesus is the Messiah includes the testimony of women. And that is very odd in their culture. Now his inclusion of the women guarantees the credibility of his account. Let me explain. You see, if Matthew is going to fabricate this account then he would have employed only male witnesses to make it appear genuine. By including women, he states how confident he is in the genuineness of the resurrection. In other words, by including their testimony, he is saying, prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. Furthermore, Matthew's inclusion of women demonstrates that Jesus broke down the cultural norms concerning women. In Christ, there is equality between men and women. Paul says there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. You are all equal in Christ, Galatians 3.28. In Christ, women are as vital to the gospel ministry as are men. And while men and women may have differing roles in ministry... A woman's role, the woman's role is not only vital, it must be valued. Jesus valued it. Now before the women depart, the angel reminds them of what Jesus had previously said. Behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, there you will see him. The angel repeats the same promise Jesus told the disciples before his arrest. He's gently reminding them that Jesus does not expect them to keep watch at his tomb. He does not expect them to hide in the upper room as are the 11 disciples. He expects them to go to Galilee. Again, the inclusion of the women confirms the resurrection. The sixth confirmation of the resurrection 
is the Messiah's appearance in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, take word of my, to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, I want you to notice in verse 8, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Now, that's obnoxious, folks. I don't know anybody that's got great fear and at the same time rejoicing. Can't happen. What you need to understand here in verse 8 is there is a compression of time. Three events are compressed into one verse. First they were filled with fear, then they had great joy, then they ran to report it to his disciples. Now, let's take into account Mark 16, 8. The women went and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's what really happened. They had great fear. And let's not give these women grief. Oh, well, they should have believed that angel. Shame on them. Sit down and quiet yourself. Listen, folks, put yourself in their sandals. Think about their emotional and mental state over the last several days. And to their credit, unlike the men who were cowering away in the upper room, they stayed with Jesus through his death and through his burial. And they just saw an angel that caused Roman soldiers to fall over, faint, pass out, and be paralyzed in anxiety. Now look at the word Matthew breaks into his narration with. Behold! Pay attention! Something's about to happen. What happens? Jesus met them and greeted them. And that verb greet at Cairo means rejoice and be glad. You see, meeting the resurrected Jesus is a cause for rejoicing. They had been gripped with sadness, gripped with fear, but now they've got a reason for great joy. And immediately they take hold of his feet and worship him. Think about this. They grabbed his feet. His resurrected body was a physical body. Before his death he had a physical body. After his resurrection he has a physical body. And I love this moment of tenderness. Jesus comforts them and says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Notice, by the way, Jesus, how he refers to the disciples. My brethren. Though they had abandoned him, he still loves them. And not only does he love them, he views them as equals. My brethren. Now go. Now the verb go here, different word, hupago, this is imperative. In other words, get going, don't delay. Take word. Now that's interesting. Apongolo. It's the same, it's related to the word angelo, which is the word for angel. I want you to take word. I want you to be a messenger. Just as the angels are messengers of God, Jesus now commissions these women to be his messengers. The first gospel messengers, the first missionaries of the church were the women. With their fears allayed, filled with great joy, they run to report it to his disciples. And so the Messiah's appearance confirms the resurrection. Now that brings us to verse 11 to 15. 
Not much to say on this, but a thought for us. The second aspect of the messianic culmination is the circumvention of the resurrection. Let's read verse 11 to 15. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were, we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Again, verses 1 through 10 gave us six confirmations of the resurrection. Nonetheless, some refused to believe the evidence. And those who refuse to believe the evidence will instead attempt to circumvent the resurrection. Now, Matthew focuses here on the Roman guards. They recovered and some were on their way to Jerusalem. But some went to the Sanhedrin. Some of the guards avoided Pilate. Knowing that dereliction of duty was punishable by death. And so let's go to the Sanhedrin and see if we can save ourselves. And the Sanhedrin, that bunch of cronies, they concoct a plan. And they ensure the reluctant soldiers, listen... If Pilate gets word of this, we'll take care of him. We'll pay him off. We'll keep you out of trouble. And then they give a large sum of money to the soldiers and tell them, here's what you're going to tell people. The disciples came by night and stole away his body while we were sleeping. They paid the soldiers to bear false witness. And the irony of this plan is the very situation for which the soldiers were placed at the tomb why were they there? To prevent the, bus, the disciples from stealing the body. The very purpose they were placed there to prevent occurred. And what makes this lie more incredulous is that the religious leaders expect the soldiers to perjure themselves. We want you to lie. Listen, they came to the Sanhedrin trying to avoid being accused of sleeping on the job because it results in death. Nonetheless, that's the story they're going to tell everybody. By the way, the religious leaders missed a critical plot hole. If they were sleeping, how did they know the disciples stole the body? And them dirty details, I'll tell you. If the disciples stole the body, why were none of the disciples arrested and charged with the crime? You see, neither the soldiers nor the Sanhedrin denied the empty tomb. Instead, they tried to explain it. They tried to circumvent it. They tried to get around it. Because a resurrected martyr is more dangerous than a dead one. Sadly, Matthew, who's writing this in AD 62, records that this story is still being circulated. Thirty years later, the lie, the attempt to circumvent the resurrection was still going. And worse yet, we're 2,000 years later. And we still have people trying to circumvent the resurrection. Because they don't believe it. It can't be true. The disciples must have stolen the body. You know, listen, people love a good conspiracy theory. The disciples stole the body. Oh, the, the women went to the wrong tomb. That must be the reason. But listen, folks, not only were they there, but it was Joseph's tomb. You don't think Joseph knew where his tomb was? He knew the location. Nicodemus was there. The women were there. You got others, they'll go so far 
as to circumvent the resurrection by saying, well, he swooned. He passed out on the cross. He fainted from the weariness and loss of blood, and so they took Jesus and put him in the tomb to take a nap, to rest. Listen, I'd like a good nap, but I'm not taking one in the tomb. And so while he was taking a nap in the tomb, the coolness of the tomb revived him. Now listen, there are plenty of problems with that theory. But let me give you one response. The Roman guards pronounced Jesus dead. These were experts in death. These were the prison coroners of their day. They didn't need to break his legs because he was already dead. So instead, they pierced the pericardium sac around his heart, guaranteeing he was dead. And another question. Do you ever wonder what happened to the soldiers that didn't meet with the Sanhedrin? I'm sure some went to Pilate and were executed. I'm sure others fled. I mean, listen, you're already going to be accused of dereliction of duty, so you might as well just run and derelict of duty. But I believe some became believers. Remember, the centurion and the soldiers at the crucifixion had already acknowledged that Jesus was the Son of God. I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to believe that some soldiers became disciples of the risen Messiah. Friends, the messianic culmination where the resurrection of the Messiah is a critical truth of the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 17, Paul says, If Christ has not been resurrected, if he's not been raised, our preaching is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. See, listen, if he didn't resurrect it, I'm an idiot. I'm a fool for standing here preaching. But who's the bigger fool, me for preaching it or you for believing it? That's Paul's point. Christianity is nothing more than an elaborate ruse if he's not risen. But to that, Dr. Luke says this in Acts 1-3. Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Acts 1-3. Now he says there's many convincing proofs. That word tekmirion means that there's factual evidence to establish the veracity or the truthfulness of the resurrection. What are those many convincing proofs? They're the hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. First, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. Then he appeared to the women. Then he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then he appeared to ten of the disciples, not including Thomas. Then he appeared to the eleven disciples a week later. Then he appeared to seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Then he appeared to over 500 believers at one time. Then he appeared to his own brother James. Then all of the apostles on the Mount Olives. And finally he appeared to Paul. Well, did, did Luke know what he's talking about? In Luke 1.3, Dr. Luke says that he write, wrote these things only after having investigated everything carefully. There are many convincing proofs for Jesus' resurrection. And we can be confident that Dr. Luke thoroughly researched and vetted each one of those witnesses. Over 40 days, Jesus appeared. It wasn't just one appearance, it was multiple appearances over 40 days. During those 40 days, they, people saw the Messiah, they saw the scars of the crown of thorns, they saw the scars of the nails, they saw the scar of the sword, and they also sat and talked and ate and drank with the Messiah. What other convincing proofs are there? Well, how about the changed lives of the apostles themselves? 
After Jesus' death, the apostles were cowardly hiding behind a locked door, fearing for their lives. But after the resurrection, they're courageous. They're boldly and publicly proclaiming Jesus is alive. He is resurrected. Also consider Jesus' own brothers. During his life and ministry, they were skeptical of him. Skeptical of his claim to be Messiah. They even openly mocked him. Oh, come on with it. Go and get yourself killed already, they said. And after the resurrection, they've changed. James becomes a leader at the church of Jerusalem and writes a New Testament epistle bearing his name. His other brother Jude also wrote an epistle bearing his name. My friends, there are only three choices you have with this evidence. There's only three choices for the messianic culmination. You either doubt, you deny, or you become a disciple. If you doubt what the text says, if you deny what the text says about the resurrection, especially in the face of overwhelming evidence, my friend, I'm going to tell you something. You have just set yourself on a path. A path to eternal damnation in the lake of fire. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9 says, Jesus, when Jesus will be revealed, He is going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's what you're facing if you want to deny it or doubt it. But if you want to obey the gospel, if you say, I'm going to choose to be a disciple, what does it mean? What does it mean to obey the gospel? In the words of Jesus, repent and believe. Repent. Turn from your sin. Forsake your sin and turn to God. Why? Why do I need to repent? Because you're a sinner and you're condemned to hell. You need a Savior. And so that Savior is revealed in the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, came as the Messiah to save you from sin. To save you from hell. How did he do it? He did it through his death for your sin, and through his burial, and through his resurrection on the third day. And we know that scripture confidently declares that all who repent and believe become disciples of Jesus, the messianic king. In other words, he doesn't just become your savior, he becomes your Lord. You're his disciple. You're not a doubter, you're not a denier, you're a disciple. You will have escaped eternal damnation, but let me tell you, my friends, He also gives you eternal life in the presence of His Father forever. Friend, if you've never received the free gift of salvation, I challenge you, don't delay. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow, let alone this afternoon. Choose to this day. You can choose to doubt, you can choose to deny the resurrection And you can spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Make no doubt, God didn't send you there. You set yourself there. You chose. But on the other hand, you can choose discipleship. You can repent and you can believe the gospel. And you can be assured of an eternity with God. You got a choice. Which choice you choose determines your eternal destiny. Let's pray. Father, we come to you because... The Savior is risen. That's why we pray to you. You're the mighty God and in your omnipotence you raised Jesus from the dead. You validated his sacrifice, his sacrificial death. You validated the forgiveness of our sins. 
And so to get to you, we say thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. We cast ourselves like those women. We cast yourselves at, ourselves at your feet. And we worship you. You who has the power of life and death. Father, I ask now on behalf of each one listening. Father, Lord, if there's a doubter, a denier in our midst. That Father God, you who have the power. Might send your spirit. And move upon them. To show them the truth. To convict them of truth. To convict them of sin. To convict them of righteousness. So that they would move beyond doubt and denial. And they might move into discipleship. Father I pray for each of us Lord. Who are disciples. Father if there's ever been a time of doubt. If there's ever been an inkling of denial. Of our Savior's resurrection. Forgive us. Father I ask that you would equip us. To go forth rejoicing. And declaring the good news that Jesus died, was buried, but resurrected the third day, according to the scriptures. Father, I ask that you would keep us from temptation. Keep us from the temptation to be silent. Keep us from the temptation of saying nothing. But instead that we would go forth in obedience as messengers of the gospel. Declaring to all what you have done. And for that, we give you the praise. And we give you the glory and we say, Amen.